This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time, but still found the time to create a course, grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. Welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy. I have Robert Carlson. What I know about Robert just from looking at him is that he still trains. He still exercises, keeps himself in shape. Uh, you do active shooter? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, primarily what my job focus is on. Um, you know, it's kind of my area of expertise. You still active duty or are you retired? So I am still uh, active with law enforcement. I'm still on my agency, uh, but I'm also still serving in the military as well. Uh, so currently I, I took a leave of absence from my police department temporarily and went back on an active duty status with the military. Oh, wow. Uh, so I'm both. Uh, I'm both active okay. law enforcement and active duty military. If anyone's qualified to teach active shooter, it's you, brother. Thank you oh, so much it. for uh, your years of service. So without even knowing you, what I know about you is that you have a heart to serve people. Um, you didn't go into law enforcement or the military thinking that you were going to get rich. You, uh, you, had, you had some sense of service. And who was it? Was it someone in your family that uh, steered you that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, I mean, and I, my grandfather was military and he was law enforcement as well, uh, actually for the same agency that I currently work for. Uh, so there was definitely a, a big influence to follow in his footsteps. But I mean, I, I knew ever since I was a little kid what I wanted to do. So I don't I didn't really have that kind of epiphany moment of, oh, hey, I'm going to go do law enforcement or military. It was just that's just what I've always, as far back as I can remember, wanted and wanted to do. And that's been always been the plan. I hear a little accent. Is that Texas? Uh, no, uh, I've bounced around the country a lot. So I mostly grew up out in Colorado, so kind of Midwest. And then I moved to the Southeast. I moved to uh, Tennessee about 15 years ago. Okay. So I've probably picked up kind of a hybrid of accents uh, okay. across the, the country. All right. Yeah. I'm in uh, Long Island, New York. So yeah, uh, sometimes people hear it very strong, depending on certain words that I say. Um, if you could tell us a little three to five minute story about you, your life and who you are. 
Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, so, like I said, I you know I grew up always wanting to do law enforcement. My whole life has been geared towards that goal. Uh, you know, plan was always join the military and then then be a cop. Uh, and so that's exactly what I did uh, when I was uh, seventeen. I actually I, I took a couple little sidetracks here and there. So when I was still in high school and then seventeen. Uh, I decided to go out and become an EMT, so I got into the to the EMS world while I was still still in high school. I actually graduated high school early just in order to get my my state license. Um, did that for a real short period of time. It just I, my heart just wasn't in it, so I went ahead and enlisted. Thought I was going to do pararescue for the Air Force, uh, so kind of the best of both worlds. Uh, turns out you actually got to be able to swim real good uh, in order to be a rescue swimmer. You know, you would who would have figured? Uh, so that lasted all of about one tryout. Um, so from there, I just went into military law enforcement because that was kind of always the the goal. So uh, started off, I was a uh, security police for the Air Force. Uh, did that for about 13 years on active duty, mostly assigned to the ground combat side, the infantry tactics, uh, primarily as an instructor. Um, and then after about 13 years, I was running a training center down in Florida. And I decided, you know what, if I'm ever going to do this, this law enforcement thing uh, full time, uh, I need to get out and do it now. And I'd had a break in there. I'd uh, I'd done part time as law enforcement uh, up in North Dakota for about five years while I was still in the military. So I was doing full time active duty military instructor and also serving on uh, on the police department doing SWAT. Um, so needless to say, uh, my marriage didn't survive that that five year period. Um, but so after been there, been there done that. <laughs> yeah, it turns out like if you if you're working three jobs and you're never home, they don't like that. You know, who knew that that wasn't in the book. Um, so uh, after 13 years, I said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and give this whole civilian world a try. And so gave up the military. Uh, I did switch over to the guard. Uh, I didn't want to waste the, the last you know decade plus of my life. And so uh, I went through, went through the police academy and joined one of the largest police departments in, in the Southeast United States. Um, and, you know, real quickly from there, uh, kind of just, you know, started skyrocketing uh, in my career. Um, after about three years, I got uh, picked up to go to the uh, police academy, uh, which was actually kind of funny because, I left a full-time training job in the military because I said I wanted to go back to to do an operational. I didn't want to be an instructor. Yeah, that's you know that was that was a cool, fun thing, but it wasn't what I wanted my career to be. And uh, so I left that. When I went through the academy, the instructors are like, you know, hey, do you want to come out here and teach? When you know, uh, as soon as you come off probation, they're like, we'd love to have you out here. Oh, uh, you know, I kept telling like, no, I don't want to be an instructor. I want to be on the street. I want to be a cop. Well, three years later, I got a phone call. Hey, do you want to come out to the academy and be an instructor? And I was like, of course I do. That sounds awesome. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I'm horrible about doing what I think I want to do. Um, so I ended up out uh, I was a firearms instructor for the police department. Uh, and then in 2013, I got the opportunity to stand up our active shooter program um, and kind of create it from the ground up. Um, it, we really didn't have a good solid program up until that point. Over the years, I had kind of developed, I'd spent a lot of time working in the active shooter world. Uh, being from Colorado and growing up in, in the Denver area during the 
the mid and late 90s, there were several very high profile uh, game changing active shooter events that happened very close to home um, that I, I had several friends that were involved in, um, specifically Columbine. Um, and so active shooters were always something that was very personal to me. Um, I'd lost several friends. I'd even actually known uh, a couple of shooters uh, over the years. And so it was something that early on in my career, I said, you know what, this is something I want to try and fight. And I thought I thought that I wanted to fight it from being on the SWAT team. And I wanted to be the guy going in and chasing these people down. And that's just not how reality works. So when I got the opportunity handed to me to, to build this program and start teaching police how to actually respond, I jumped at it. And so I started uh, started running our program, trained all of our department in uh, in one year. Um, so I trained uh, roughly 2,600 officers uh, in a total of uh, nine months. Um, I don't know how close you are to uh, Nashville. Are you still in Tennessee? I am, yes. So those guys that everyone underneath the comments on Instagram, they all said that those guys set the standard for the U.S. That is correct. Uh, as a matter of fact, so I, got, I got interviewed by the Washington Post a week later, uh, kind of talking about, you know, what what were my thoughts on Nashville? And the quote that I gave them basically was, uh, and this is what they use as a tagline in their article, this is as right as right will ever look in the real world. Um, yeah. yeah, that was that's as good as it'll get. That's uh, a perfect example of needing a good guy with a gun to stop yes. that guy yeah those those guys did phenomenal work uh i'm extremely blessed and honored to say that uh actually one of the first officers that went in um i know him uh not well uh he had actually been a student in a class that i was helping teach just a few weeks prior to that um so phenomenal phenomenal guy uh those guys those guys did amazing things yeah they uh they definitely set the standard for uh, anyone that's training active shooter, they need to watch that incident. Yes. And there's so many learning points from it. Oh yeah. The best, one of the best trainings I ever did was a live active shooter drill with, uh, high school students who were running and fleeing from the building. Yep. We, we were using uh, paintball and, uh, our emergency service unit was, the they were the instructors they were running the drill and uh we had like mask uh you know like gas not gas mask maybe paintball mask yep. and paintball rounds and uh and you're out of breath and the adrenaline is high and they're yelling at you and then you have all the students that are screaming fleeing the building and some are laying down injured it was one of the most realistic and best and i only did it one time um, you know, I know they, they run it regularly and it's probably kind of costly for the department. I'm in one of the larger departments also. Um, I'm not in New York city, but I'm outside of New York city. I'm in one of the larger departments. We have 2,500 members in our department. Yeah. That's good. Science. Yeah. You're, right about, you're right about even with us. Yeah. 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 So it's, uh, definitely in the top 20 in, in terms of size, but uh, that was absolutely one of the best trainings that I've ever been to. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was one of the things when we first started our, our program up, um, we, we started doing those big exercises real early on. Um, we didn't do them a lot at, at schools. Uh, what we actually were using were some of our local malls. 
we'd come in on a Sunday before the mall would open up and all the mall employees would come in and open their stores. So the whole mall would participate in this. So they'd open the mall like it was just a regular day. And then we'd get like 300 volunteers to come in as, as shoppers. That's really good. Yeah. And we'd moulage them up. There'd be blood all over the place in the mall and we'd put a bad guy in there and then police would have to respond and we'd have fire sitting outside. They'd have to respond. And we even had hospitals that were involved in it. So we'd go all the way to transporting these, these simulated patients to the hospitals so the hospital had to practice doing all of their their mass casualty stuff. That, that, it's a shame. Of fun. It's a shame that these incidences are becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah. And it's a shame that we have to do that training. But God bless the people that teach, you know, and people like you. God bless you. Thank you so much for what you do. It's very necessary, obviously. Yep. Because uh, we have a mental health crisis in our country. Agreed. You know, and uh, it's a shame that they're shutting down these um, psych hospitals, you know, because there's so many people running around with untreated mental illness. Yeah. You know, how many uh, emotionally disturbed person calls have you been to yourself, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I was I was a CIT officer most of my time when I was on patrol. I mean, that was that was largely what I did. CIT crisis uh, crisis intervention, intervention team. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So we we were we were officers that were specially trained in dealing with individuals that were going through some sort of emo- emotional crisis, uh, whether it be medical or or not. Um, you know, it could just be a, a really low point in their life, and they were in emotional distress, and we were the ones that came in and and hopefully tried to resolve that that situation. It seems like there's an increase. Uh, just over the last two years, but even even greater than that, the last decade, it seems like there's an increase of mentally ill people that are just out on the streets. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, I've, I've had that same thought myself a lot, and it's part of me wonders, are we seeing an increase in actual mental health cases, or is it just that we're getting better at diagnosing it and identifying it and it's always been there or if there's something else because i find it super hard to believe that just all of a sudden in the last one or two decades that we've just seen this massive explosion of people with mental illnesses without some sort of triggering event so I, i think that it's really that was it was always there it's just now it's not as hidden and we're better at identifying it and people have their cell phones out and they're recording so people are way more aware of uh you know the person in the street that's panhandling you know they're usually mentally ill because there's a lot of services out there in every state that and and people will drive up and say hey can i offer you some services can i help you you know get right and the reason why they're out there is because they're they're mentally ill yeah i'd say 90 99 percent of them have some kind of psych issue oh agreed yeah and that's why you know they they don't want you know oftentimes they don't want they don't want that handout or they want they don't want that help because they don't recognize that there's something wrong um in in a lot of cases yeah i i completely agree um are you now i know you're working full-time how many years do you have in your current agency so i've got uh let's see going on 15 years with my current department um you look young 
<laughs> I appreciate it. I, I don't feel it. I promise. <laughs> I got 25. Yeah. Mid forties kicked my butt. Um, <laughs> no, so I've got, I've got about 15 with my current agency. And then, like I said, right now I'm back playing with the military for, uh, for a little bit. And I've got 27 with, uh, with the military. Um, so yeah, I got military gave me a great opportunity about two years ago with all the training I was doing for uh, law enforcement. They called me up and said, Hey, uh, we got this uh, law enforcement training center that's run by the military. Um, you know, we're, it's a it's a congressionally funded training program for the military to provide training to law enforcement across the country. And they're like, you want to come work for us? And uh, so, about, yeah, about two years ago, I took a leave of absence and went and took an instructor position, basically doing the same thing I was doing for the police <laughs> department. Uh, traveling around the country, teaching, teaching cops, but now I'm just, it's all federally funded. So it's all free. It's, it's awesome. Wow. wow. That's pretty cool. And other than that, do you have any other businesses or like, uh, yeah. Uh, so I run, um, I run my own training company, um, uh, started a company in back in about 2019, me and a buddy of mine, uh, kind of recognizing the state of training in law enforcement, specifically firearms and active shooter, because that was our, our backgrounds. Uh, we started up a training company to provide training to law enforcement and military agencies. And that's kind of grown. Now our big specialization is on tactical medicine, because that, that's what I teach currently. Um, so when you say uh, tactical medicine, does that encompass tourniquets? Yes. Yep. That's actually probably the biggest uh, component of our class. But yeah, we uh, we run a it's called tactical emergency casualty care. It's the the civilian version of the military's tactical combat casualty care or TCCC. Um, it's an offshoot from that. Um, and so uh, that's I'm the lead TECC or tactical emergency casualty care instructor for uh, the counter drug program. Uh, that's what I do in the military. And uh, and then so we just kind of carry that over into our company as well. So we've got a large, large push right now when it comes to teaching police and, and military uh, tactical trauma medicine. I imagine uh, the South along the border. I just had a uh, guy on a couple of days ago who was running for U.S. congressman and he. Yep. He was also part of ICE, and I imagine the training for counter drug terrorism and tactical emergency care, I, I imagine that that would be very, very uh, relevant to them. Yeah. Do you yeah, do a lot of training along the border? Not so much along the border, but a lot of training with agencies that work uh along the border a lot of times we don't uh because our, our training center we're located in mississippi so for us to get all the way down to the southern texas border uh is would be very you know expensive and there's just not a lot of agencies that we'd have a hard time filling that class up and they would yeah. have a hard time supporting it and hosting it they but don't have big, they don't have big agencies they're all right they're all small, separate little agencies. Yeah, but we could go to uh, like San Antonio or Houston, a lot bigger city, and those those officers that work along the border can come up there and go through the training. So we do that pretty frequently where we work with with border agencies. We just don't go down to the border. It just does it just doesn't work as well down there. How do you? Um, how do you avoid burning yourself out? You're you're running. You're spending so many Ooh. plates. Yeah. Well, like I said, I still, I've still got a whole nother company too. Um, 
I honestly, I don't know. I haven't quite figured that one out yet. I, I love what I do so much um, that for a lot of it, it's not really work. Um, you know, the, I tell her, everybody always asks like, what do I do to, what do I do to, you know, decompress? I go teach a class. The, the biggest rush in the entire world, my, my like absolute happiest spot on the planet earth is standing up in front of a classroom teaching. And so when I'm, it, it, it sounds silly, but when I'm feeling stressed, which happens a lot, cause yeah, I, I am burning that, that candle on both ends. But when I really want to relax, I just go schedule a class and I go teach it. And at the end of that class, you know, a couple of days later, cause I'm having the time of my life teaching it. And after that couple of days, I, I'm walking away, just totally rejuvenated, just fired up, ready to go, you know, crush some other, some other project. That's awesome. So if money wasn't an equation, you would just teach all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually kind of what uh, my goal is, is, you know, eventually I'm trying to you know, get to retirement where then I can just focus completely on running my two companies. Uh, Cause I also have a nonprofit um, that I'm president of a, I'm president of a nonprofit that focuses on active shooter research and prevention and education training. So that's kind of like our civilian um, preparation division. We go out and talk to the community and churches and businesses about how to prevent and how to react to to active shooter attacks. What are some solutions that you think to um, would be applicable to prevent more of these incidences happening? So to me, what the biggest impact is, and everybody has their different opinions, but uh, to me, what I think the biggest impact is being able to identify for if everybody in the world, you know, if I was to have the, the magical fairy wand and I could, you know, sprinkle it across and get my one true wish, it would be, well, one, it would just be for active shooters to go away. But uh, more realistically, it would be for everybody in the country to know what the warning signs and behaviors of somebody that's going through that crisis is so that and then know how to to report that information so that we can start early intervention strategies. To me, that's the best, the kind of the biggest bang for the buck is if we can catch this before it becomes a problem and we can intervene, that's how we save lives is we prevent the attack from ever taking place. Uh, so to me, this is a, a educational solution to a mental health problem. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um, I had, a, you remind me of, I had a case uh, where a high school student, he wanted the day off from school. So I, I won't bury the lead, but he wanted the day off from school. So he basically wrote something on Instagram in his story or in Snapchat. I don't remember which it was. But he wrote something that said uh, cool shooting. And then he had this emoji. Yeah. And uh, when I interviewed him, I knew immediately that, well, first we, we got a, we got permission to search his house. He had no weapons and neither of his parents had any weapons. So he didn't have access to weapons. And um, his reason for posting it was legitimate but they took it very serious and, as they should. And, and he was, he was charged initially. He was charged as an adult. Uh, they eventually dropped the, dropped it down to juvenile. They brought it down to family court um, because the kid was working. He did it just to get, he did it like an old school bomb threat. Yep. You know? He did it to get the day off from school. 
get the school to shut down. But in today's day and age, like you have to know that that's not a joke. Yeah. And, and, and you have to, you know, as the school and as the law enforcement, you have to take it seriously. Yes. Now, you know, there's also a flip side to that coin as, as school officials, as law enforcement, you know, we need to get better at the investigation side, being able to, to determine, because honestly, in most of these cases like that, if you know what you're doing, you know, as far as an investigator, like when I come in and somebody says, hey, we have a possible threat or we have a possible uh, person of concern, you know, for the most part, it's pretty easy and quick to determine if this is, you know, like a valid threat or not. Similar to what the Secret Service does when yes. someone makes a threat against the president. Yep. They, they assess, well, how I think there's a, it's a two prong assessment. How capable are they and how serious is the threat? Some, something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what we do. I mean, like very quickly, usually within an hour or two, um, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can you can pretty much have access to all of their social media networks. Um, you know, you're able to to view their online search histories. Uh, you know, you're able to interview the, you know, school officials and, you know, friends or coworkers or people that they interact with, family members, then, you know, uh, actually then look for physical evidence such as actually searching their, their house. So usually within about two hours, if you know how to do all of that, if, as an officer, if you're trained in how to do that, that active threat investigation, uh, pretty much within one to two hours, you can probably be able to say, hey, this either is a hoax or it isn't a hoax. Now, we may not be able to say, okay, yeah, we know the full depth of it yet, but we can rule out pretty quickly, hey, this is legit or not. Here's a question that you've probably never been asked. Do you think video games have any role, any responsibility in this whatsoever? Because I've played... A lot of different I've been playing games since I was uh, since I was probably 12 or 11 since Atari. I've been playing, games, yeah. you know, since the first systems. Um, but the games that I was playing was Super Mario, you know, going way back. Yeah. And then high school, uh, it was probably Grand Theft Auto, maybe after high school's college was Grand Theft Auto. But they definitely became more realistic and more yes. uh, violent. Do you think they have any role? I think it, it's a hard question. And this is, I actually have been asked this question before. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's one, there are a lot of people out there that have differing opinions on this. I know Dave Grossman has, um, has, has published some work on this and he has his opinion. And uh, I've, I've spoken with Dave and he knows that, that my opinion is slightly different than Dave than is probably not a, a gamer. He's probably, no. he's probably no. never played an Xbox or a PlayStation game. Now, I agree with his I agree with his methodology. I, I do think there is some validity behind you know his his assertion that with the more realistic the game is, the more we desensitize the the individual to the violence that they're doing in the game. That makes sense. That's literally the concept behind when we do law enforcement training of scenario-based training and reality-based training, all the force-on-force force kind of training that we do with law enforcement, that's in a, you know, not direct connection, but that's basically the same psychological effect that we use. So there is a valid argument there, but to say that that's the single source, 
I, I certainly disagree with because yeah, we all grew up playing violent video games, um, you know, first person shooter games, you know, things like that. But yet we've only seen this spike in active shooters, you know, it continues to get worse and worse every single year, but it's only really been within the last couple of decades that we've seen it explode. They've been around since the sixties, but you know, really in the last 25 years, even really the last 20 years is when it's just exploded. So I, I think that video games may be one of many and by many, I mean, hundreds of contributing variables to causing that increase. But I don't think we can lay the blame solely on video games or violent media or anything like that. I was, like was going to say, uh, you can't blame the, the media either for, for showing these incidences. No. Now, that it's, again, that's a contributing factor. That yes. again, that's 100%. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, we we did a study years ago um, on how news media plays into active shooters. And there, there's an effect called the contagion effect where human beings and not just in active shooters, but human beings in general, we model and copy the behavior of, of actions that we observe. So when you see somebody watching and seeing these active shooters on TV and all the attention that these shooters are getting, and you have somebody that is is feeling marginalized, feeling in, you know invisible, feeling as though nobody cares about them, and they're on they're kind of on that fence. So this isn't what causes it, but when they're on that fence, they can say, you know what, I want to be like that guy. So the news media can help push them over the edge, but no, we can't lay the blame. We can't lay the sole blame on that either because they got to that point through some other factor. Is there a way that we could use the media to maybe promote the guys and gals who are protecting the schools? I, I've seen programs where you have um, retired Leos, retired vets, that are um, sitting outside of schools armed because they just decided they wanted to protect a certain school. And I love those stories, but I feel like they're few and far between. They are. I, I do think that the, the news media is a great tool. It is a tool that can be used for good and it's a tool that can be used for evil. Um, and I think that we as law enforcement uh, I've said this for many years. Um, we we have to get we have to get a whole lot better at information warfare. Yes, and that's controlling the narrative and being able to spell out the narrative that we want to push out. And I've said into- I've said this also is that uh, propaganda has a negative connotation to it. Yep. But those commercials, be all you can be, they had an effect that they work. They work. So I think we need the same style of propaganda for lack of a better word yep. for law enforcement uh, I, I agree we we have got to the the military and i get you know there's a big push in demilitarizing law enforcement and i believe it or not i'm actually one of the biggest uh, advocates for that currently but it also doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means too um but you know we can still learn a lot from the military the military is a well established well oiled well functioning machine 
for the most part. Not <laughs> those of us at the ground level might might have different experiences, but as a massive organization, it is very it, it has a lot of good programs and ideas. And we as law enforcement could take some, you know, some lessons learned from that and being able to control that narrative, being able to control the information, put the focus and the stories on what we want, like those those individuals protecting schools, focusing on the safe school aspect. You know, those are the kind of things that let us get our narrative out there and also help take the attention away from the bad people so that they're they're deprived of that notoriety and that fame that they're after if we deny that to them that removes one of the largest incentives that some of these these active shooters have if um i, I want to respect your time if people want to find you how how would they search out what, what should they how should they contact you so uh, a couple different ways. I'm real, real active on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not I'm not big on a lot of the other social media platforms. I just I kind of tend to stay more professional. So very, very active on LinkedIn. So I can easily be found on there. Uh, if you've got questions uh, about any kind of law enforcement or military training, um, Brave Defender Training Group is, is our training company. So bravedefendertraining.com. Um, that's where we do all of our, our law enforcement, tactical medical training, or if it's something that's more active shooter prevention, uh, brave defender community services is our nonprofit that does all of the, the active shooter research and education. Uh, and so that's just bravedefender.org is that website, uh, or like I said, just find me on LinkedIn and I'll point you to the right, right organization. All right, brother. I got five last questions for you. Uh, Rapid fire. What's your definition of a hero? Ooh. So uh, my definition of a hero is somebody that is doing something for somebody else at great at potential to great risk to themselves. And that's why I have this show to represent uh, the military, first responders, you know, nurses and uh, police officers, firemen, all the people that have chosen to serve and thank you for your many, many years of service. Um, you kind of already answered this question, but when stress is starting to get high and you want to save yourself, how do you show yourself love? So a couple of ways. Well, I love working out. Uh, like you said, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the gym at least twice a day. Um, twice so, a day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I'll go, I'll, I'll go lift for about an hour, hour and a half. And then I'll usually try and go for a couple mile run. So I, I love going out getting into the woods and doing a trail run that that's, that's kind of one of my big decompression activities, or I'll just go out to the range. I love shooting. That, that's my, that's my, my passion and hobby. So if it's just one of those days, I'm just going to go blow something up. <laughs> that's awesome. I got to link up with you down there in Tennessee uh, and go for like a trail walk. I, I, I'm not a big runner, so I can walk, I can walk with you, but <laughs> you know, we've, we've actually, I'm really lucky. We have probably one of the best trail spots here in town, right? Parallels the river. It's just, it's out in the woods. It's quiet. It, it, I love it. It's great. Um, would you ever consider offering coaching down the line? I mean, maybe once you retire. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what I do already. Uh, I mean, so it's what I love doing. Um, I, I'm not, I don't normally do it one-on-one, -on -one, so that would be a definite uh, a new new experience for me. But yeah, I love I love teaching and working with people. So yeah, for sure, that's just that's right in the wheelhouse of what I'm already doing. 
And uh, what's your greatest strength, your your best ability? What's your power? Ah, uh, my work ethic. Uh, I think is is kind of my biggest strength. Um, I always place I place the needs of my students. Um, you know, the way I view things is I get the luxury of I get to work in a nice, safe classroom. Uh, I'm not the one going out there getting shot at, spit at and thrown on the ground and fighting people every night. And that comes with a responsibility. And so to me, I take that very, very seriously. So that work ethic that I throw towards my students, because when they walk out of my classroom, 30 seconds later, they could find themselves in the in the event where they have to use whatever I just taught them. Um, and so I owe them the, you know, to me, it's an obligation. They deserve everything that I have to give. If I don't walk out of that classroom so tired that I can't stand up, then I failed my students. And so to me, that that's that's the biggest thing for me is just that that drive, that work ethic, that that passion for for making sure that, that my students get get everything. I love that about you. I love your passion for teaching. Um, if you had a comic book superpower, my last question for you, and yeah. I'm, I'm going to let you go. What would it be and why? So I know everybody always gives the cliche, I want to be you know, super strong or I want to fly or, you know, be invisible or some, some cheesy thing like that. Uh, I want to be immortal. I want to be like the Highlander um, mm. because I think there, there are just so there. I love experiencing new things and I hate that we are limited by the clock as to how much stuff we can experience in life. And I would love to be able to be alive and just see all the great things that are going to happen, you know, to, to us as a, as a race, all the things that we're going to experience good and bad that I'm not going to, I'm not going to get to see, I'm not going to get to be there and feel it. And that, 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 that sucks. So I would love to, I'd love to just straight up be immortal um, just so I can experience all those things. We live in an amazing time and this is going to go a little bit off topic, but with quantum computer computers in the next 10 years, we're going to see an explosion of technology. Like we, we do definitely live in an amazing time, but even if it, even if it takes 20 years, you and I will get to see it. And I think in the next 10 years, we'll land on Mars and maybe start yeah. to colonize it. So if we do become a two-planet species, you're going to see so many innovations and so much change. Oh, and then the other thing, being part of the Air Force, uh, all of these UFO sightings, right? Yeah. <laughs> if we do discover aliens in the next decade or so, I think it will bring our, it'll bring us together um, more as humans than anything else. Oh yeah. There, there's so many, at some point, I mean, I, I do believe there has to be some other living species in the galaxy. At some point, we're going to bump into each other. It's so that could big. be tomorrow. That could be in 10,000 years. But yeah, the fact that I, you know, the fact that I may miss that, man, that kills me. Um, <laughs> I don't you think know. you're going to miss it. I, I don't think you're going to miss it because I think with the, with the introduction of quantum computing, we're going to see so many advancements in the next decade or two, the next two decades, we're going to see so many advancements that it's going to be like a different world. It's going to be mind blowing. Yeah, I agree. But, but like I said, you know, all that, all that's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years. Imagine what's going to happen in the next 100 to 200 years. 
Well, here's the beauty of the next decade, next two decades. We may extend our life another hundred years just yes. from like I'm all about the nanobots. So when they when they create them, I'm like, put them in me. Oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm totally yeah. You you've got some experimental drug that might extend human life. Yeah, I'll be a guinea pig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I definitely I, I'm I'm right there with you, brother. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a fun interview. All right, all right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith, the number one. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.